0: Welcome to Amici, News and Insight from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. In today's Diversity Dialogue segment, we're joined by Justin Harvey Conforti, Principal Court Attorney for the Honorable David H. Guy, Surrogate and Acting Supreme Court Justice in Broome County. Justin brought a wide range of experience to the position when he started in 2017. He was previously a Senior Attorney for Mental Hygiene Legal Services in the 3rd Department, a position in which he represented mentally and developmentally disabled individuals. He litigated child abuse, neglect, child support, and adult guardianship matters in family court. He was a deputy attorney general in New Jersey. He was a law clerk for a superior court judge in New Jersey. And in law school, he was editor-in-chief of the Seton Hall Circuit Review. Justin and his husband live in Bainbridge, New York. Welcome to the program, Justin. Hi, Tom. Tell me a little bit about your background and early influences and and mentors. My background
1: is that I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up in North New Jersey in a town called Union. Um, Very comfortable, kind of middle-class background. Um, I have two parents who are still with us and a younger sister who is two years younger than me. Um, As far as influences go, I mean, it's, goes without saying that my first and strongest influences were my parents um they created a really safe um loving and fun environment growing up um so that's had a long lasting impact on me um as far as influences in general we had a very open policy in terms of uh television and media and entertainment so I was always very influenced early on from pop culture um and probably in particular queer pop culture. I always liked things that were a little outside the norm. Um,
0: what, and, what, what sort of queer qu- pop culture was available then? I mean, from a, like I said, there was a
1: <laughs> anything goes policy when it came to, came to what we could watch, so The Simpsons was really early on um, and very irreverent. Um, John Waters, I mean, I always loved his movies even from a young age. Um, <clears throat> and music, too, has always been huge for me, so I, I'm a gigantic Prince and David Bowie fan and have been since very early on so I've always had those things kind of swirling in the background for me
0: What did your parents do?
1: My dad sells health insurance and he still does that today and my mom raised us, she was home when we were younger so she was raising us and she also always had different jobs along the way so she worked at a pharmacy for a while and a Hallmark store at one point and dentist's office, just kind of all these different things along the way. But she was always home with us when we were in grade school and middle school. Hmm.
0: And what's the genesis of your hyphenated name?
1: The genesis of my hyphenated name is that I am married. um, And it's a combination of my husband's last name and mine. So Hmm. my original last name is Conforti, and his last name is Harvey. And hyphenating them that way was the compromise that we came to rather than one of us uh, taking the others. And um, I'm happy we did it. It's a little clunky when you have to call a credit card company or uh, figure out a bill and spell the whole thing out, but I'm glad we did it.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> now, adolescence is a is a challenge for everyone. Is it a special challenge for those who are gay?
1: I think so. Um, I, first of all, I agree with you that it is definitely a challenge for everyone and all its different ways that it manifests for people. But I think for gay people in particular, um, it can really be challenging because it's obviously this time where everyone's developing feelings, your body is changing, you're first coming to realize you find someone attractive or you like someone. And I think when you're gay, maybe back more in my day than now, but if you're gay and coming into your adolescence, realizing you're having those feelings, Um, you can also simultaneously be realizing that that's something you feel like you have to keep secret or pressed down. And so you're stuck in this moment where you're seeing everyone who's around you, like your friends and peer group, having first dates and crushes and kisses and all those things, and you're just kind of watching from the sidelines knowing that you can't really participate in that way and, and keep things you know, the status quo and and the way you want it to be. So um, that can probably, you know, have a long-lasting impact. It can probably be hard to shake that off and maybe even cause delays. And, you know, you're stuck in an adolescence later that you didn't get to have at the time um, when you are having feelings of thinking you want to be someone else or, you know. I mean, I'm sure feeling like you want to be someone else during adolescence is also part of that universal aspect. But I think for gay people, maybe back more in my day, um, can have some extra challenges to it.
0: It sounds like you had the benefit of having a supportive family, though.
1: Definitely. Definitely. They've always been very supportive. um, And I'm very thankful
0: for that. Now, as a kid, did you experience any discrimination, hostility, or ostracism growing up?
1: I would say... So I was in middle school and high school around the year 2000. So it certainly wasn't the worst time in history to be a gay person, but it also wasn't a time that was as maybe enlightened or progressed as it is now either. Um, I wasn't openly gay in high school. Um, I went to an all boys Catholic high school. Um, so that was a situation that was challenging for me in the first two years. And then actually for the second two years, I really enjoyed it. And ended up having a lot of great friends. Um, but in that environment, you can imagine, um, especially back then around 2000, the word gay, it was something that was, it became, it was this common catch all kind of word for anything that you wanted to insult. Something was silly, something was stupid or feminine, or you wanted to come at it in a certain way. You would, you know, that's so gay. Um, and that's, that's the more benign term. I mean, people were also throwing around other all sorts of slurs in very casual ways. Um, I, that's what we would probably today identify as like a microaggression. But, you know, when you're in that environment every day, it can feel like death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, so I would say that's probably the worst kind of day-to-day environment I've been in. Um but I would also say I've always kind of forged ahead, and I think just being myself and being as fearless as I could push myself to be um, helped me you know, work through middle school and high school <laughs> to the best I could. I mean, again, like adolescence, it's got its challenges for everyone, but I forged my way through.
0: I would imagine that until a certain level of sensitivity kicked in, people, even well-meaning people, would make or could make casual comments not realizing that they were hurtful. Yes. And like I said, I mean,
1: it's easy to rewrite things with the foresight now of um, being a little more enlightened or or thinking, you know, things have changed so dramatically over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, like I said, since I've been in high school. So nowadays, someone throwing those words around casually in an insulting way would not fly. Mm -hmm. Hopefully would not fly at all. But back then it was just you would say now that just wasn't something anyone thought of. It wasn't really on the radar in that way, but I'm glad we've changed <laughs> for the better in that way.
0: So am I. What was it like uh, going to college at, at Boston University?
1: College was really a good time for me. It was very fun. Um, I was an English major, so and I knew that from when I, I was declared from the first day. So I was always doing a lot of reading and thinking, um, but I was in the city. I was in Boston, and I was you know, running around all the time. It was like your first real taste of freedom. And Boston is a great place to go to college because it's just teeming with all other college kids. And um, so I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I had a roommate. My roommate freshman year was someone I was very good friends with from high school. So we had a good established kind of situation right from the beginning. And I think our connection kind of drew a lot of other people in. So we had a really good friend group. And I... I enjoyed every day of college. It was really a really good time.
0: Oh, that's great. Now, when you were majoring in uh, a literature, were you thinking of law school at that point?
1: I was not, no. Um, I kind of, I, I guess I would say my declaration of an English major was just, I've always had a love of reading. So I just knew I wanted to spend as much time reading as much as I could. Um, I had a concentration in American literature in like 1800s, um, and kind of American culture and history of slavery, and all, that was kind of where I really focused in eventually, but I've just really always been a really gracious reader um,
0: the decisions who's your, to go who's your, who's long your favorite author until later who's your favorite author? I'm sorry to cut you off.
1: jeez, oh, my favorite author. Well, it's changed over time in high school uh, Kurt Vonnegut was my number one and I still love him to this day um Don DeLillo is a favorite. I love Toni
0: Morrison. Um, lots and lots of people. Sounds like you have very eclectic takes, tastes there. <laughs>
1: I do, and I try to mix in nonfiction, too, when I can. But mm-hmm. um, I, I do always end up gravitating most toward fiction.
0: Anyhow, you were telling me how that uh, segued into law school. I'm sorry to interrupt you.
1: Yeah, so being in college, I'm um, sorry, law yeah. school really wasn't yeah. on my radar, Um I graduated from college and moved back home, and I was lucky enough, I immediately had a job right out of school to, I was the editor of a local community newspaper, Um, those are very, I guess, far and few between these days, but when I graduated from college, there was one in a town, West Orange, in New Jersey, and I did that for about a year and a half, and I really enjoyed it, and I got a lot of great writing experience, and practical experience in terms of the kind of coverage of things for the paper, like a lot of – it was my first taste of local government, like um, town meetings, zoning board meetings. I would go to all of them on a regular basis, and I had never experienced anything like those before. I had no sense of local government or how it functioned, and I think it was kind of a combination of – I wasn't going to do this newspaper thing forever – And I knew I had to kind of have more of a long-term plan. And in that aspect, I was like, I'm going to take the LSATs and kind of see how this plays out. And I did well enough and followed it through in that regard. But I think on a more maybe subliminal level, going to those town meetings, almost everyone who was running the show was a lawyer, had a law degree. And so I think that maybe kind of planted a seed of, you know, if you want (laughs) to, it seemed like if you wanted to be someone who was, Involved in the mix of things and decision making, or the you know the people up at the front doing the votes and and considering all the plans, a law degree would put you in good steps. <laughs> so I think I think it was a combination of those things that led me
0: in that direction. So what what uh, type of law were you thinking of practicing while you were in law school, or were you always thinking about public service?
1: Well, no, I wasn't always thinking of public service. I think <laughs> I think I was probably a little more. At the beginning of law school, of that kind of generic, like I want to end up at a big firm. I'd like to make as much as I can as a salary and, and see where all that goes. I was, I was unfortunate enough, I, maybe unfortunate, maybe fortunate in a way. When I ended up graduating, I was. It was when the recession hit, and almost like it was very hard to get jobs. I mean, really, really hard. And I had what I thought at the time, everything on paper that would get you into an interview and get you to the next level and everything, and just, it was never taking off. So by the time I graduated, I was, the jobs I could get ended up being the public sector jobs. I've actually only ever worked in the public sector, which is something, that's like one of my major career bragging rights, for me anyway. um, I, I feel like I've only ever done things that I agreed with or were, it lined up with what I felt maybe principally. But looping back to the other thing you asked, I think when I was in law school, what I was most interested in was constitutional law, which I actually did, oddly, practice a little bit after I graduated. That's not, like, a very common thing to end up actually litigating mm-hmm. in as an area, but I did that when I was at the New Jersey Attorney General's office.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now, how did you end up going from New England to Broome County? <laughs> um, well,
1: I... Was at the attorney general's office, um, and I was dating, and I was using uh, online dating, which was kind of more becoming a thing at that point. And I found who is now my husband, whose name is Matthew. We met on an online dating site, and at first, I mean, we hit it off right away. We, we had great conversations and just kind of nonstop. And then we were talking on the phone, and. He wanted us to meet up right away the next weekend somewhere halfway between. And at first, I said okay, but then I thought this is so unrealistic. He was it was three hours away at that point from where I was living in New Jersey, and I thought this is how is this ever going to be anything? It's we're so far away. But and I actually did say that to him. I did try to cut it off, but he kind of let you know lured me back in, and then we met up. Just really quickly soon after that in New Paltz, which we decided was halfway for where we were both living at the time. And then, you know, we hit it off so great that we hung out every weekend after that. Either he would come down to me in New Jersey, or I would go up to him in... He was living in Morris at the time, which is a town that's in Otsego County, Mm -hmm. uh, nearby where we live now. And eventually, we did long distance for maybe 10 months, and then... we were trying to decide if he was going to go to New Jersey or I was going to come up here, and I absolutely fell in love with the countryside. It was a totally different way of life up here, and that really appealed to me. So I threw my hat in to try to find a job, and I did get a job at the Shenango County Department of Social Services as one of their staff attorneys, and then I moved up to Morris, where he was living, and we've been doing great ever since. (laughs)
0: Great, great. Now, in Surrey Court, the uh, court, of course, deals with guardianships and adoptions. What sort of ge- gender-diverse issues arise in the context of a surrogate court matter? Well,
1: <clears throat> well, first I would say in Broome County, which is where I work for, for Judge Guy, our adoptions are actually out of uh, family court, so Judge Guy does not have the pleasure, unfortunately, of doing adoptions. I remember when I was at CSS, the family court judges would always say those were the happiest, easiest cases. So unfortunately, we don't get to touch those here. But we do have a lot, I would say the majority of all of our cases that we deal with in our court here in Broome County, um, with vulnerable people um, who are in very, very difficult, tough times in their lives. Um, in surrogate's court, we have obviously people dealing with the death of a loved one, that they're trying to get everything wrapped up and squared away. And then in the aspect where Judge Guy is appointed as an acting Supreme Court justice, for ten count, the 10 counties that are in our district, he is assigned all the article, mental hygiene law, Article 81 guardianship cases. So in those cases, you see all sorts of people who are just, struggling to do simple everyday activities in their lives, and you have their families trying to figure everything out and pick up the pieces and try to, you know, put a plan in place for them. Um, we also actually have – Judge Guy's also assigned mental hygiene law cases with patients who are in psychiatric units in acute crisis and need to be treated over their objection. And so there's a lot of those different types of cases that we do. I would say one – to answer your specific question about gender diversity, we, in the Supreme Court cases that we've gotten, we actually have had a fair amount of um, name change petitions for people who are transgendered. Um, So, I mean, for me, there's there's nothing challenging about that from a legal point. It's kind of processing an application. But I know for those applicants, it's like a huge life-changing event that is like the final thing that affirms their identity. So it's, those have been really, we've always been uh, happy when we get those. Those are those are kind of a joyous occasion.
0: Do you think you bring a different or broader perspective on those issues and someone who is not gay?
1: I do. Um, I mean, specifically for those kind of name change petitions, I know even, it's something so simple, but just even knowing... Um, you know, preferred pronoun for a person in an email or when I call them to get more information or explain, you know, how what the next steps are going to be, um, I'm definitely, you know, immediately sensitive and mindful for that. For those applications, too, we've um, worked with them to get, you know, normally when someone changes their name, there's a publication requirement, but with the transgendered individuals, they have the right to ask for um, that to be waived and to, to you know, process it in a a way that doesn't put their identity out there in a way that could be like threatening or dangerous. And, you know, that's something that I definitely, um, had on my radar for those. I think in general, with our guardianship cases or our surrogate court matters, um, you know, I always try to make things as painless as possible for all of our attorneys and especially the unrepresented litigants. Um, I know that, I mean, I guess I could say having dealt with any difficulties myself, I can imagine being in their shoes and, you know, anyone who's involved in a lawsuit, even if it's one that's not adversarial, like some guardianships, not all, but some are not adversarial. um, It still involves, you know, someone, a loved one in a vulnerable position and, and, you know, it's not a good time in the person's life. So I'm, my goal is always to just be really helpful, keep it really professional and, Make things as simple as you can, especially, like I said, for the pro se, unre- unrepresented litigants. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring my perspective to that, I think, but that's also something—a huge thing I, I take away from Judge Guy every day. Um, you know, he's very much in that vein of just trying to be really respectful and empathetic, and and help people get to the solution as much as it can, as much as something can be solved in in
0: these cases. Sure. Sure. Now we talk a lot in the court system about diversity. Is it just a matter of optics or does it make a real difference in the quality of justice that the court system provides? I think well, I think it's probably
1: both. I mean people respond to just the numbers a lot of the times and what something looks like and you know, you see that it's a diverse group of people and I think that I think that actually does have value, but I think in terms of the Substantive justice that gets doled out in a case at the end of the day. I think that diversity is a huge part of that because everyone brings, you know, gay, straight, black, white, male, female, everyone brings their different experiences that they have to all these different positions that we, you know, operate in here in the court, the judges, clerks, and administrative people, and so on. I think that the different little perspectives people have get baked into the substance of, you know, everything we touch when we're moving these cases toward their completion. And I think that's really important for the people that come into the courts, who, like I, I was saying, are obviously not having, its a, it can be a low point in their lives. It can be a, a time that they're struggling or something really difficult is going on. And, and so I think that diversity helps
0: Improve outcomes legally. It seems like New York has been somewhat of a mixed bag in uh, gay rights matters, and we were, we were well ahead of the curve with a brashy decision, where the Court of Appeals became the first U.S. appellate court to conclude that same-sex relationships are entitled to legal recognition. We were behind the curve in recognizing same-sex marriage. And then maybe we got ahead of the curve again when, uh, in 2017 when Chief Judge DiFiori established the faila commission to address issues facing the LGBTQ community. Where would you say we are today? Is New York, for the purposes of this interview, when the court system is, is welcoming to people of all persuasions as it should be? Well, I could definitely say it has been to
1: me <laughs> um, in every possible way. So for me personally, that speaks volumes. But I think in general... It is kind of like you're saying, it's like uh, it can feel like two steps forward, one step back. You know, there's some huge great breakthrough and then maybe something retreats a little bit. Maybe that's just the nature of progress in general. Um, I think this is my personal perspective here in our um, judicial district. You know, we have 10 counties that we cover and none of the Supreme Court justices are people of color and we only have one female um, justice who's elected to the Supreme Court, who I have to shout out, by the way, in terms of progress and where the courts are, are one female, like I'm saying, is Judge, Judge Gary, Elizabeth Gary, who is our, also our presiding justice in the third department, and also a member of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think someone like her, in this huge leadership position, is a great example of... Um, you know, things moving forward, the court system being really progressive and setting an agenda of inclusivity and respect. I mean, she's always putting these issues at the forefront and she's made LGBT, you know, pride events really important and just kind of, I, I you know, listening to her when she gives speeches and, and the things she focuses on, she highlights these kind of historical discrimination issues for all groups and gay people in particular. And I think something like that is really huge. Um but like I said, there's room for improvement. I mean, there, there always is, and, and especially with the composition of the judiciary. But in and of itself, um, from the inside, I think the court system is very welcoming.
0: Um, and like I said, it has been to me, so I have no complaints. <laughs> that, that's, that's always good to hear. So it sounds like you would yeah. encourage people of your background, of any background, to consider a career in the courts. Is that accurate?
1: Absolutely. I tell people all the time that I hit the jackpot to end up where I am in the court system with Judge Guy and with our our secretary, Cindy, who we work with closely. I'm really blessed to be part of this team, and anyone who would be lucky enough to get a job in the court
0: system, definitely go for it. Well, we're blessed to have you a part, as part of the team. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Justin. I appreciate your time.
1: No problem. Have a nice day.
0: You too. Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the Court System's website at www.nycourts.gov, and you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an MHE podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.